The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are continuing to work our way through 1 John. Last week we looked at the last half of verse 8 in chapter 3, so... I want to just go back there just a little bit longer because I think there's a lot in there. There's a lot of theology in verse 8. The last half says, The Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's work. Now, we focused on that last week. That was kind of what we spent our time on. And I want to ask, do you see if you remember from last week, what are the devil's works that Yeshua appeared to destroy? What's he talking about? All right, separation. Very good class, you did remember. Uh, it's my understanding that the works of the devil were to separate man from Yahweh. That's what he was about. That's what he wanted to do. Now, we see this back in Genesis, Genesis 2.8. It said, And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. So God created Adam... And then He took Adam and He brought him into the Garden of Eden. Now the Garden of Eden was God's dwelling place. That was His temple. That was His home, His residence. That was into His presence. And then in chapter 3, we have this serpent telling Eve not to believe Yahweh. The serpent is not a snake, we talked about that, but a divine being. Not an animal, but a throne room guardian, a seraph. One who was part of the divine council. He decides to deceive humanity to get rid of them. The divine council was in the garden with Yahweh. That was where they dwelt. Well, God brought man in there, and some of these other gods were not too happy about that. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted humans removed from Eden, from Yahweh's council and his family. So the devil gets Adam to disobey God, and man sins. And because he sins, he falls. He is removed from Yahweh's temple. He is put out of the garden. And now he is separated from Yahweh. Well, then Yahweh gives us this promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. So Yahweh tells them that Eve's seed, a human being, will come and will fix what Adam has done. A deliverer is going to come. Now, it's my understanding that the gods understood this promise of a coming Redeemer who would be human. So the gods' next strategic move was an attempt to destroy the human race by genetically corrupting the human line so the Messiah could not come through it. So man is separated from God. God has a plan. I'm going to bring man back into my presence through a Redeemer. So they're scrambling, they're saying, we've got to stop this Redeemer, let's corrupt the human race. And we see this in Genesis chapter 6, 1-4. through When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. Alright, these are divine beings in the heavens, and they're looking, they're saying, there's some good looking women down there. Okay? And they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, 
for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So the sons of God that we see in verse 2 and verse 4 are rebellious divine beings from God's heavenly host. They're called watchers. Now remember that we have seen that there are many Satans. We've talked about that. Most people have this view Satan is just this one being and he's all against God. Well, there are many Satans. And we looked last week at some uh, section in the book of Enoch, chapter 69, verse 4 through 12, which lists five Satans. And it said this, and the third was named Gadriel. He it is who showed the children of men all the blows of death and led Eve astray. So here Enoch calls Satan, well, who we call Satan, he calls him Gadriel. He's the one who led Eve astray. So these sons of God, these watchers, these Satans or devils, have taken the form of masculine, human-like creatures, and then these gods married women of the human race, thus violating the heavenly-earthly division that Yahweh had established. And so now we have a hybrid offspring of this abominable union. There were giants called Nephilim. Nephilim were giants with physical superiority, and therefore they established themselves as men of renown for their physical power and military might. Let me read you something from Michael Heiser about this text that I think is extremely important. Alright, so let me review here. Satan gets man to fall, gets him out of the garden. God has a plan to bring him back, so they're trying to stop this plan by corrupting the human race. I think that's what Genesis 6 is about. Heiser says this on this text. He says, 99% of Second Temple Judaism believed the reason wickedness so permeates the earth is not just an extension as it is a large part, not even linked to what happened with Adam and Eve. But the reason that people are always and universally thoroughly wicked is because of what the watchers did. Now, <clears throat> let's back up to the beginning. He says 99% of Second Temple Judaism he doesn't mean they went around to everybody in that time and took a poll to see what they believed. He's talking about their literature. All right, if you look at Second Temple literature, 99% says that the evil that is in man is not just due to the fall, primarily because of what the watchers did. He goes on to say, everybody in Paul's circle, everybody in Second Temple Judaism, with the exception, again, he's talking about the writings, with the exception of four intertestamental references in intertestamental literature, everything says the reason for the proliferation of evil is the sin of the watchers, everything. Now this is huge because it tells us that Second Temple Judaism had a supernatural view of Genesis 6. They saw Genesis 6 as God's coming to earth. Now many today want to do away with that, and they say, oh, this is sons of God, and sons of daughters of Seth, and all. They come up with these human explanations of what's happening in this chapter. But the people <clears throat> writing at that time saw Genesis 6 as God coming down, having sex with women, and producing a hybrid offspring. This is what the majority of people believed in that time. Now, Enochian texts 
and the intertestamental period and the New Testament tell us that these watchers did two things to corrupt God's plan. First of all, they raised up a seed to corrupt and oppose the people of God. In other words, they, they mingled the races, so they were corrupt and the Redeemer couldn't come through that. But secondly, they helped humanity destroy itself by teaching them things they weren't supposed to know. 1 Enoch 7, 1 and 2 says this, And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go into them and to defile themselves with them. All right, so that's them mixing with the taking women, wives of, from the human race, and it says, And they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. So these watchers corrupted mankind. They taught them all kinds of things they weren't really supposed to know. They taught mankind to use certain technologies. They seduced them with aberrant sexual relations. They helped man down the path of destruction. Now Enoch says that the flood was sent because of the watchers. Now the voluntary sexual transgressions of the women with the watchers was a violation of heaven and earth, which caused the humans to share the blame. They didn't just grab these women and, you know, were taking them and raping them. They married them. This was a voluntary thing. So the wickedness of men was their sexual union with these gods, these watchers. And again, I, I think this happened, all this is happening because the watchers were jealous of Yahweh bringing man into his sacred space, into the garden. So the serpent gets them kicked out. Then Yahweh tells his plan to redeem them. So the watchers seek to pollute. And stop that. Now, <clears throat> let's look at Adam for a minute. God constituted Adam as the federal head or representative of the entire human race. In other words, when God put Adam in that garden, Adam represented you, he represented me. He's man. He's man's representative. What he does will affect everybody. We understand that in this country, right? We have a representative form of government. We elect representatives, and what they do, we suffer for, right? <clears throat> so we understand that. Well, God constituted Adam as the federal head. When Adam acted, he acted as our representative. Thanks to some help from Satan, Adam failed. He sinned. And his, his sin has been put to the account of every person ever born a human. Paul teaches this in Romans 12. He says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. That's Adam. Death and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, obviously there's some controversy about this passage. I think the death here is spiritual death. I believe that man was created to die physically. I don't think he ever was created to live forever in a physical sense. He says death spread to all men. So the devil gets Adam to disobey God, and through Adam's sin, sin enters the world, and as a result of Adam's spiritual death, separation from God comes upon all men. That's the death here. Men are separated, spiritually separated from God. Spiritual death. Now in verses 12-21 through 21 of Romans 5, Paul develops the parallel between Adam and Christ. Adam is the head of the whole human race. Christ is the head of the new covenant people. And there's an analogy is shown in the statement at the end of verse 14. He says this, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not in the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who's to come. 
So Adam was a type of Christ. Christ is the anti-type. Christ is the last Adam. First Adam failed. The last Adam was successful. Verse 16 says this, For the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. We see here that Adam's sin resulted in judgment. Krima. Krima is a sentence or decision on the part of the judge. The sentence from the judge resulted in katakrama. And katakrama is defined by Suter in his lexicon as the punishment following the sentence. It's in a passive formation in the Greek. It's not likely to refer to the sentence as the edict from the judge, but rather the punishment. Alright? They're guilty. They've been judged guilty, and the punishment is spiritual death. Katakrama. That's the punishment. They're spiritually dead. Adam's sin is imputed to all. This is condemnation. This is spiritual death. This is separation from God. Verse 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation. Katakrama. For all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Again, in this verse we see the same idea. Adam's transgression resulted in condemnation or spiritual death to all men. When Adam sinned, he sinned as our federal head, he sinned as our representative, and Adam's sin is imputed to the account of every individual in Adam's race. Everybody, people, everybody is born spiritual dead, therefore separated from God because of Adam's sin. Listen, you're not an enemy of God because you were born and you were doing fine, you were doing okay, and all of a sudden you messed up and you sinned, and God said, oh, you sin, I don't want you anymore. No, you were born a sinner. The reason you sin is who you are. You are a sinner, that's why you sin. Everybody is born that way. And they're going to be that way unless God intervenes and gives them new life. Spiritually dead. Man is separated from God. And this is brought about by a work of the devil. That was his work. His act was a representative act. Adam's was. And you and I, being represented by a federal head, we participated in Adam's sin and are all therefore separated from Yahweh. Now look at verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Because of Adam, we're all made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now listen, as Adam committed one act, so Yeshua committed one act. It was an act of obedience that led Him to the cross where He died for our sin. His one act of obedience was an act of sacrifice. He gave Himself for sinners. What was the result of that one act of obedience? It appeased the wrath of God. It satisfied His justice. Sin was now paid for for those He died for. So God put to the account of His elect the righteousness of Christ. Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Yeshua. No condemnation. Reading this in the original Greek text, the emphasis rests on the word no. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. That's the emphatic word in the Greek text. The Greek word that Paul uses here for condemnation is the same word he used in chapter 5, katakrima. 
So they, we could read, as there is therefore now no spiritual death for those who are in Christ. There's no spiritual death. Alright? There is separation. Man will never, Christians, believers, those who trust Christ, will never again be separated from Yahweh. The separation of man has been repaired by Christ for all who put their trust in Him. There will never be, in the life of a believer, spiritual death. can't happen. There will be chastening. There will be discipline. But there will never be separation from God. God fixed that. Now the destruction of the devil's work of separating man from God is so complete that we read a very bold statement in verse 9. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Because his seed remains in him, He's not able to sin because he's been born of God. This is a good translation, people. You won't read too many good translations on these verses. Okay, This is a good one. Christian Standard Bible. This verse has generated a lot of confusion and controversy, and I'm sure you can understand that, because my experience is probably like yours. I've been a Christian for 40 years or so. I feel quite capable of sinning. And my years of walking with the Lord haven't really lessened my ability. They have lessened the frequency, but not the ability. So what does John mean that those born of God can't sin? Here's how I understand this verse. No one who is born of God will commit the sin unto death. The sin of separate that separates you from God. Which is unbelief. That cannot happen. And that God's seed remains point to the permanence of that work. The seed that God plants cannot be uprooted. So I take this as referring to the specific sin of unbelief, which is the sin unto death. Now I've been saying that this passage in 1 John 3, 4-9 through consists of two short parallel sections, each of which contain three things. We looked at this many times. First of all, we have a definition of sin in verse 4 and 8. He says, sin is lawlessness, sin is of the devil. I see this as the specific sin of unbelief that he's talking about here. Anomia, he used the word for lawlessness, all right? I see in verse 5 here, referring to the sin in general. Well, let me get verse 5 up there first. Secondly, a statement about the purpose of Christ's work. All right, Christ came to take away sins. Verse 5, verse 8a, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, this work gets a little sketchy here. Um, but follow me, and if you don't agree with me, i got no problem with that. Just tell me how you see this, because this is how I understand it. I see verse 5 here is referring to sin in general. And in verse 8 is speaking about the sin of unbelief, which separates man from God. Something specific. All right. Then in verse chapter, the third point is a statement about the implications of Christ's work for the Christian life. He says, no one who abides in Christ sins, verse 6, no one who is born of God sins. Now, I see verse 6 as referring to sin in general. And I see verse 9 referring to the sin of unbelief. Now, if you don't see the sin of verse 9 as a specific sin, you have problems. And I don't mean mental problems. I'm just saying you have problems with the text. Okay? Because it's hard to deal with this text if you don't see it that way, I think. Now, everyone who's been born of God does not sin. He is not able to sin. Now this verse 
doesn't fit with the primary rule of hermeneutics, which is the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith is the rule that Scripture interprets Scripture. This means that you can't take any part of Scripture and interpret it in such a way that it shows conflict with something taught somewhere else. The Bible doesn't do that, all right? Well, so let me ask you this. Does the Scripture anywhere teach that believers sin? Do this. Yes, it does. <laughs> the Scriptures everywhere teach that believers sin. It continually, the New Testament continually calls believers to stop sinning. See, what John wrote earlier would seem to contradict what he writes here. Earlier he writes this in 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Well, 1 John 3.9 says that believers do not sin, they even cannot, but here it says that if we say we don't, we're self-deceived. Yeah, I know. That doesn't make sense. Now, that sounds like a contradiction. Well, look at 1 John 2.1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, if you can't sin, why write that they may not? And then he says this, but if anyone does sin, you can't sin, but if you do, no. Here, Christians are told not to sin, but if they do sin, they have an advocate with the Father. So which is it? Do Christians sin, or are they unable to sin? See, Scripture doesn't contradict itself, so there must be a way to reconcile these verses. But the means of reconciliation is far from agreed upon. Okay? I shared with you several weeks ago, I gave you eight different views on this text. So let's run through them real quick, all right? First of all, we have the habitual sin view, and a lot of, lot of uh, translations have adopted this view, and they say, well, you can sin, you just can't do it a whole lot. You can't practice it, you can't be, do it habitually. All right? Uh, the second view was the sinless perfection view. In other words, this view is teaching, you get to a point in your life and you don't sin anymore. Anybody got there yet? Not yet? Okay. The not real view. This view says, oh, he's not even, he doesn't really mean this. He's talking about the, the opponents and this is what they say, so he's not, this is not even real. All right? It's not, not something we have to worry about. The absolute view, which takes it just like it says, Christians don't sin. Period. All right? The projected eschatological reality view. This says, this is talking about after the Lord returns, this is what we'll be like. Okay? Uh, preterists have a hard time with that one. Okay? <laughs> the new nature, old nature view. Oh, he's talking about the new nature. See, the new nature doesn't sin. You sin. Okay, so I can so when I do sin, I just say it's not me. It's my, you know, that's my old nature, or that's my flesh, or whatever. And so it's not really bad, right? The contradiction view. This view says this is just a flat contradiction in the Bible. And it's amazing that scholars have adopted this view. Not, I'm not talking about liberals either, all right? So, well, maybe I am, but. <laughs> and the specific sin view. That's the view I hold. This is, a, this is some specific sin he's talking about. Now, do you remember which view I said was the most popular? It's the habitual sin view. Okay? And we see that because, like I said, all the translations have kind of adopted this. This is also the predominant view among those who hold to lordship theology because it really supports their teaching. You can't habitually sin, and no one really can define habitual, but, you know... They argue that 3, 6, and 9 are saying that those born of God cannot sin habitually. And they do this because the Greek uses the present tense. 
It asserts that the tense necessitates a translation like, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And that's the ESV. I love the ESV, but this is, they messed up here. Okay? This would mean that those born of God may sin somewhat. How much is not specified. They just can't practice it. And you can just say, I did a lot. I sin a lot, but I'm not practicing sin, okay? <laughs> or you can switch up sins and say, I'm not, you know, I'm not practicing. It's just, this is crazy. You can't sin regularly or persistently, is what they say. But on all grounds, whether linguistic or exegetical, the approach is indefensible. As has been pointed out by more than one competent Greek scholar, the appeal to the present tense invites intense suspicion. No other text can be cited where the Greek present tense, now this is important, people, no other text can be cited where the Greek present tense, unaided by a qualifying word, can carry this kind of significance. Let's apply the perfect tense to a couple other verses in this book and see how that works out. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Or how about uh, 1 John 5.16, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and he should give him life to him. So he's committing these sins. Now, Dr. Thomas Constable writes this on comparing these verses. He says, if we were to translate 1.8 and 5.16 where the present tense also occurs, we do not continually have sin and continually sinning a sin, respectively, these verses would contradict 3.9. It would involve no self-deception, he says, to say that we do not continually have sin, since whoever is born of God does not continually sin. Furthermore, if one born of God does not continually sin, how could a Christian see his brother Christian continually sinning in 5.16? If anyone sees his brother continually sinning a sin, see, that contradicts 3.9. Constable goes on to say, suppose we translate the present tense in John 14, 6 the same way. No one continually comes to the Father except through me. He said, this would imply that occasionally someone might come to God in another way. No orthodox translator would offer that as an acceptable rendering of John 14, 6, and he says it's not acceptable in 1 John 3, 9 either. Alright, so this is just, you know, it's a Greek argument, but it doesn't work. You know, they can't, just because it's a present tense, they can't take that and make it say habitual. So, we can't add words like, make a practice of sinning, ESV, or practice of sin, New American Standard, or keeps on sinning, complete, com, complete Jewish Bible. The King James and the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, they got it right. All right, that's a good translation. He does not sin. He's not able to sin. Now, the reason this is important is because commenting on this verse, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, you all heard of them, com huge commentators, all right? They say this on this verse. Insofar as one sins, it makes it doubtful whether he's been born of God. That's what, that's what understanding this verse does. To, it's like, oh, you sin? Well, I guess you're not a Christian. I guess you're not born of God. Okay, first of all, show me this person who does not sin. I want to meet him. <laughs> you don't? <laughs> Actually, I've already met him. His name is Yeshua, okay? The only person that doesn't sin. I mean, I read this by James Foster Brown. I go, really? Seriously? 
Really? Seriously? I'm getting a phone call? <laughs> Listen, we all know that those born of God do sin. We know that, right? How do we know that? Because we do, and we've been born of God. All right? So we're looking at it, and we're saying, well, I don't know if I can agree with that, because i got a problem here. But see, and this is my problem with the Lordship view. It makes you want to question whether you're really a child of God. And let me tell you what. If you do not have assurance of your faith, if you don't believe, I'm really God's child, what is your motivation for living the Christian life? I'm not even sure I belong to Him. What's the point? Yeah, trying to get there. I'm trying, working hard. It's failure constantly. But if you have the assurance of your salvation, God called me, I'm His, I belong to Him, I want to live to honor Him. It makes a difference. One writer writes this. He says, however, in this verse, John was looking only at the sinless nature of the indwelling Christ that we possess. As a total person, we do sin. And we can never claim to be free of it. But our inward self that is regenerated doesn't sin. Oh my. A total person, I sin. So he says we don't sin. Well, he means the inward person, the new nature of me. This sounds just like the Gnostic view. You know? Well, it's my flesh doesn't matter. My flesh sins, not really me. So then you can, as a believer, you can do whatever you want. Say, not really me. My new nature is good. It doesn't do this. It's you know. So this is kind of a you know crazy idea. Others have taught that the Christians are able to attain to a state of sinless perfection, and that's what it's talking about. But that's kind of dumb here because he says everyone born of God. You don't grow into that. It's instantaneous. You're born of God or you're not. So if you're born of God, you don't sin. So it's not something you eventually reach. You either have it or you don't. So to me, and if you have some other alternative, I'm open to hearing it, but to me, the only view that makes sense is the specific sin view. John is speaking of a specific sin. What is that sin? It's lawlessness. Anomia in the Greek. And Cole and Krauss suggest that anomia may be the key to interpreting this passage. And I agree, if you understand, this is a rare word he uses here. Now, a number of exegetes consider anomia to mean more than just lawlessness. They contend that the word may have the meaning of rejection of God, opposed to the will of God. The sin which distinguishes the children of the devil is a sin which has roots in anomia, rebellion against God, which is unbelief. It's a sin that believers can't commit because he says God's seed remains in them. The children of God do sometimes commit sin. 2.1 just told us that. But the one thing they do not do is commit anomia, the sin of unbelief. Now we could say that the sin John is talking about in 1 John 3.9 is the sin of rejecting Christ. Notice how he closes the epistle here in 1 John 5.16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother what does brother presuppose? A Christian, right? If you see a brother committing a sin, well, if Christians can't commit sin, how do you see your brother committing a sin? Not leading to death. He shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. And I think that's referring to spiritual death, separation from God. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there's a sin that does not lead to death. 
And I think we can identify the sin and the death with something that fits grammatically and historically in the context of this epistle. And many writers have supported the idea that the sin and the death is a sin of unbelief, the sin of rejection of Christ, which is a major theme in the Johannian writings. If we connect 3.9 and 5.19, I mean 5.18 here, we see the impeccability of the Christian is seen in terms of rejecting Christ, not just any old sin. The sin of the death is the sin that unbelievers do, not believers. This explains the statement that the one born of God does not sin and he cannot sin. He can't reject Christ. Now the people to whom John was writing, warning the people John was warning his readers about, all right, they were involved in the denial of who Yeshua was. They said that God, Son of God, He did not come in the flesh. They thought the flesh was evil. 1 John 4, 2 and 3 talks about that. So they're denying the incarnation. They don't believe in Christ. That's essential. They denied that His death was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. That's unbelief, people. So John used Anomia only once in this epistle, and he uses it to define the sin of the world, the children of the devil. What was the sin of the children of the devil? John says that... John does say that God's children do sin. Okay? He says that, for example, in 1.9, if we confess our sins, we wouldn't have to confess them if we didn't sin, right? He's faithful and righteous to forgive us sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here the context is clearly referring to sins of believers. The key word here is unrighteousness. In 5.17, where again the context is clearly a reference to the sins of the children of God, we find this. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. The word unrighteousness here, and in 1.9, is adikia. In 3.4, we see that lawlessness, anomia, is sin. And in 5.17, we see that unrighteousness, adikia, is sin. The first applies to the children of the devil, anomia. The second, adikia, applies to the children of God. The first issues from an alienation and estrangement from God in Christ. The second issues from humanity. We sin, but we don't commit anomia. Now John says that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. He is not able to sin because the seed remains in him. Now, the word for seed here is sperma. And it's possible to take God's seed here to mean God's offspring, which would be us. Okay, And that way it would say, everyone who's been born of God does not sin because the person who's been born of God remains in God. And because he's remaining in God, he cannot sin. All right, But that, that's, you know, it, it's maybe weak, I think, at the most. Um, most commentators take seed here to mean metaphorically to the vine principle of life which abides in the believer. Now, there have been several theories as to exactly the Greek phrase, his seed, what that, what that means. Well, who, what is his seed? Augustine and Luther both said it refers to the Word of God. Because the Word of God remains in him, he's not able to sin. I don't know about that. Calvin says it refers to the Holy Spirit. Others say it refers to the divine nature or the new self. Some say it refers to Christ himself as the seed of Abraham. And some see it as synonymous with the phrase, born of God. Some say it was a term used by the Gnostics to speak of the divine spark in all humans. So there's a lot of disagreement. What is the seed? I think the most likely possibility here is the Holy Spirit. All right? We find the strong support for this, I think, in John 3, 5. 
Yeshua answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, even the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now here the concept of divine beginning is associated with the work of the Spirit. When Yeshua told Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, literally begotten, fathered, of water and spirit, even the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you can remember when we taught this way back when, okay? <laughs> the construction of the phrase in the Greek text indicates the preposition of governs both water and spirit. So it's water, even the Spirit. He's not talking about two different things here, all right? Not two separate things. It seems best, I think, to understand the metaphor of God's seed residing in the believer in 3.9 as a reference to the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God within us. And therefore, we're not able to have unbelief. He says, because he's been born of God in 3.9. Now the change from being born of the devil in verse 8 to being children of God comes because we are born of God. An understanding of the process of being born of God, I think, is best found in the fourth gospel. Again, an, another subject that in Christianity there's so much controversy over. How is a person born of God? Most Christians will tell you they're born of God because they do what? They believe. They believe. All of a sudden, I was walking along and I said, I think I'm going to believe. And because we believe, God said, that's great. Here's your reward. You get new life. That's backwards from what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you're dead and God gives you life. Now you're alive and so you believe. Dead people don't believe, people. Dead people don't do anything. Okay? And so until we get life, well, let's look at this text. 1 John 1, I'm not, not 1 John, 1 John in my brain, John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who receive Him, speaking of Christ, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, the antecedent of who here in verse 13 is those who believe in Yeshua in verse 12. And Lazarus defines the supernatural birth into the divine sonship in the negative by listing three ways you are not born into God's family. He says, not of blood. Literally this reads, who are born not of bloods. Probably indicating two parents necessary for a human birth. And this verse emphasizes that the birth of the children of God is not a normal physical process. Alright, it's supernatural. He says, not of the will of the flesh. This refers to human sexual impulse. Not born by human sexual impulse. He's saying the flesh cannot produce children of God. Crossing the boundary from the world's realm to God's realm is possible only by divine agency. It's not a human thing. And then he says this, nor the will of man. Now the word that John uses here for man is andros, which speaks of male not the genetic term for mankind. This word is often translated as husband. And I hate to say this, but the NIV interpreted it right. And they interpreted it here as husband. Okay? Yes. Even a blind dog can find a bone once in a while. Alright? <laughs> now this probably refers to the father's authority in deciding to have a child. Not of the will of the husband. In other words, the couple, just, the husband decides, let's have a baby, and so you have children. That's not how it works in the spiritual realm. And the verse actually ends with, here it says, but of God, but the verse actually ends like this, but born of God, which is ek 
Theos ganao, which is what we have in our text in 1 John 3, 9. The same thing. The Greek verb ganao is an aorist passive indicative and is placed last in the Greek sentence for emphasis. This emphasizes the initiating and sovereign role of God in the new birth. So how are people born into the family of God? They're born of God. It's something God does. It's His work. Salvation is about God. Later in in John's Gospel, in chapter 6, he makes it very clear that the new birth is a sovereign act of God. This is a verse I love to take my Arminian friends to, because this is an ungetoverable verse. Okay? I mean, if you just know a little Greek or know how to read, you can figure this out. All right? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Now, three things I want to see here. First is the phrase, no one. This is a universal negative. That's to say, no one, including both classes, no Jews, no Gentiles, nobody. The second is, can come to me. This has to do with the ability of man. Yeshua is saying, no one, neither Jew nor Gentile, no one at all has the ability to come to me, lastly, unless. Now, this this word is a necessary condition. Yeshua said that the necessary condition for someone coming to Him was God giving it to them, unless the Father who sent me draws it. Simply put, God gives man the ability to come to Christ. That's the only way anyone will ever come to Christ. Man on his own does not have the ability, does not have the desire, does not care. Man separated from God, he doesn't care about God. He doesn't seek after God. He doesn't seek things of God unless God does something first because the Bible teaches we're dead. Dead people just don't do a lot. They don't feel a lot of conviction. They don't feel a lot of pressure. They don't feel anything. They're spiritually dead. All right? Now, the Greek word translated here, draws, you all know this, right? You remember this from back in our study? What's the Greek word there? No one remembers? Helkuo. Right, that's the definition. Here's helkuo. Helkuo means to draw, to drag, by irresistible superiority. You get the picture? Just look at its uses in Scripture. I think it's used eight times. So go look up helkuo, look at every time it's used, and you'll see what it means. It doesn't mean wooing, whatever woo means. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure. You know, woo! I don't know what, you know, but that's something you used to, you don't hear much anymore, but you used to hear it a lot. God woos you, and I'm like, I don't know what that is. So how will I know if he does it? You know, <laughs> I heard a what woo, but I don't know what just woo is by itself. Anyway, all right. It's dragging. That's the idea. They, they're grabbed. They're dra- it's used of Peter pulling out his sword. He didn't woo his sword. Sword, come out. Come out. He grabbed the sword. The sword had no will of its own. It came out of the sheath. It's used of dragging men into court. It's to drag. People don't like it. What, God drags people? That's what it means. No one comes to the Father unless the Father who sent me drags him. What? That's right. Nobody comes unless they're dragged by God. This is what Calvinists call irresistible grace. Why is it called irresistible? (laughs) Because you can't resist it, right? (laughs) And listen, and I've heard people describe this. This It's not that God drags those that don't want to come. Like he's dragging, I don't want to be a Christian. I want to just perish and I want to have anything to do with it. No. That's not it. He changes the heart. He makes the unwilling willing by giving them a new heart. 
In regeneration, God gives us spiritual life, which includes a desire for Him. I remember very well when I became a Christian. I remember, you know, minding my own business, going about my life, doing my own thing, and some guy at work handed me a chick publication tract, Big Daddy. I read it. I got convicted. All of a sudden, it was like, and I remember, this a couple days after this, Kathy and I are walking in the mall, and she did something or said something, of course, you know, that ticked me off, and so I used the name of God, and I said, God, God bless you, but I didn't say bless, you know, and when I said it, it bothered me, and I was like, and I literally looked at myself, what is wrong with me? What's happening to me? There was a change that took place. All of a sudden, I cared about the things of God. I wasn't looking for God. I had no interest in that. But He gave me new life. And now I had a desire. I got my Bible off a shelf that had been sitting there since 6th grade graduation you know, from Presbyterian Church we went to. I had about that much dust on it. you know. And I cleaned all the dust off. And I got down on my knees on my bed and I said, God, I don't know if you're real. I don't understand any of this. But if you're real, show yourself to me. And I started in the book of Matthew. I got past the begats, all that stuff, okay? And then I started seeing things. But it was like the Lord just began to open my eyes and show me things. And when God gives you desire, you're going to act according to that desire. You're going to follow Him. You're going to choose Him. And that's what happened. Now here's how I understand verse 9. Everyone who has been born of God does not reject Christ. These opponents were rejecting Christ. They were saying they were with God. They were saying they're in fellowship with God. But they were saying He never was incarnate. That was not really Him. Because His seed remains in Him. He's not able to reject Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us because He's been born of God. Believers, we sin. And quite often, on a regular basis. But our sin is not unto death. This verse is telling us that we cannot commit the sin that unbelievers do. The sin that leads to death. The sin of rejecting Christ. We cannot commit that sin because we are eternally secure. Another thing the church fights about. Can you lose your salvation? Can you not lose yourself? In Once saved, always saved? Listen, if ever He loved you, He loves you forever. And if you think you can lose your salvation, it's only because you don't understand salvation. Okay? And I don't say that to be mean or rude or anything, but you don't understand it because it is a sovereign act of God that He does something that is permanent. Look at John 6.37. It says, Yeshua's talking here. He says, All that the Father gives me. See, here's what, another thing we have to understand. The only reason anybody comes to Christ is because the Father gave them to Christ. The Father had a love gift. When Jesus died on the cross, did I say Jesus? Yeshua died on the cross. <laughs> or Jesus, depends on who... <laughs> When he died on the cross, see, when I get excited, I slip back to my old ways, all right? (laughs) (laughs) When Yeshua died on the cross, most people believe he died hoping someone would believe, hoping someone would come. Maybe no one does. So he dies totally in vain. But that's not how the Bible pictures it. When Christ died on the cross, he died for a certain group of people that God had given him. God gave Christ a love gift of the elect. Here's a gift I have for you. He has given these people to him. So when he died on the cross, he died for a specific purpose, for specific people. All that the Father gives me, he says, everyone he's given me is going to come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast him out. You never can get out of it. You can't get lost. All right? 
You can't reject Christ because you're part of who He is now. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. It's speaking of eternal security. Salvation is secure. People, just like I did nothing to get my salvation, I was given by the Father, I was drawn by the Father, I can do nothing to keep it, I can do nothing to lose it. I'm eternally secure in His electing love. If any part of my eternal salvation depends on my power and ability and commitment and righteousness, I'm damned. Because I could lose myself, if I could lose my salvation, I would. I would. And so would you. So rejoice in the fact that you cannot lose it. Now some people look at this as a detrimental thing, like, oh, you can't lose your salvation means you can sin all you want. Okay, so that's like saying you're a child of the Father so you can disobey the Father all you want, right? Because you're His child. Is that how it works in your family? It didn't work that way in my family. You disobey, you pay the price, okay? The blueness of the wound cleanses, okay? And God disciplines, all right? Bear the rod and what do you do? You spoil Him. Because the rod is to save them from death. All right, they have to understand there's consequence to action. Well, God's the same way. You're his child. You'll never not be his child, but he sure does spank his children when they need spanking. He disciplines his children because he loves them. Just like you discipline your children if you love them. All right? All right. So we can't lose it, people. We need to rejoice in that. The one who's been given, the one who's been drawn, they come. And they are eternally secure. I think that's a beautiful doctrine. I, I hated that doctrine as a young Christian. I thought it was a license to sin. I didn't understand it. And then as a raving Arminian, I gave in and became a Calvinist. You know, And uh, let, me, uh, let me add here as, as we wind this down. That <clears throat> and here's where I differ from most people. I think verse 6 can be taken in an absolute sense. I think verse 6 and verse 9 are talking about different things. Everyone who remains, that's John's word, mano, abides. Everyone abides in Him. He says, does not sin. I think it's using sin here in a general sense. If you abide, if you're intimately with the Father in this abiding relationship, then you're not going to sin. He says, everyone who has not seen Him, or, or everyone who sins has not seen Him or known Him. Now, Seen Him and known Him are words that John uses for intimate fellowship, for abiding. So he's saying, listen, if you're abiding in Christ, you're not going to sin. And I don't mean any kind of sin. Because you're abiding in a relationship with a sinless God. And when you sin, it's because you stopped abiding. And believers, I think we can live a life here of holiness and righteousness before God if we practice the presence of God. If we're mindful of Him and not ourselves in most cases. So it seems to me that John is saying that to abide in a sinless person means you're not going to sin. But we can interpret verse 9 in the same way since it says that anyone who has been born of God does not sin. So they just if they've been born of God, they don't sin. So I, verse 6 is an absolute sense, but I think verse 9 is talking about a specific sin. We see sin in both these verses. So, And here's my conclusion here. Either John uses sin in different ways in this text, all right? Everyone who remains in him doesn't sin. If you're abiding, you don't sin. 
Everyone born of God doesn't sin. Now, most people, as we've talked about many times, they don't see a difference between abiding and being born again. They think all Christians abide. I think that's foolish because I think we saw the Lord said, if you believe, He's talking to the believers, and He says, you believe in Me, you're clean in verse 3. And then in verse 4 in John 15, He says, abide in Me. Now you're clean, abide. This is something Christians ought to do. So I think they're different. And that's why I think this is different this way. I see him using in 6 as a general sense, missing the mark. But in verse 9, he's using it specifically for unbelief. Now, and like I said, I don't know anybody that takes this view. Okay, so take it with a grain of salt. Study it out for yourself. Huh? No, no, no one who takes this view. So please just, you know, be a Berean, do some research there. And if you come up with something other, let me know what you think. All right, now. We come to verse 10, alright? As we come to verse 10, we need to understand that this verse is a transition verse. Alright? We're moving away from 3, 4 through 9, and we're moving into what follows, which is 11 through 24. The concept of loving one's fellow Christian is introduced at the end of verse 10, and then it's expanded in 11 through 18. Alright? 10 says this, This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not a God especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. Now, I need you to remember something here. The verse divisions are not inspired, right? They were added later. The chapter divisions were added in the 13th century. The verse divisions were added in the 16th century. Okay? So they're not inspired, but we take them that way sometimes. And and usually it's good, all right? The divisions are helpful. It's nice to, like I said, I, I couldn't teach without it. How would, how would you know where I was? Now go to the middle of your Bible. Look over here and find the book of Galatians. And go halfway through the book of Galatians. And now come down a little bit. You know, I mean, it would be very difficult. They're very helpful, okay? But here, they're not helpful. Because uninspired people put these together. Here's how the verse really should be, all right? This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. It's my opinion that the section we have been looking at, 1 John 3, 4-9, through 9, concludes with the first half of verse 10. That's the end. And I think it's preferable to take the last half as beginning the new section that talks about love. Now what the first half of verse 10 is saying is that you can tell the children of God from the children of the devil by their faith. He says, this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. See, the devil's children sin. They don't believe. They don't believe who Christ is. Well, you want to know who God's children are? They're the ones that believe Yeshua is the Christ. That's what he's saying, I believe. The children of the devil sin because they don't believe that Christ is the God of the Bible. They don't believe what the Bible says about Christ. The children of God are made evident by their faith in Christ. And that ends the section. Okay, so we concluded that difficult section and I'm glad it's gone. It was, it was fun. It was interesting, you know. And I, I think I learned a lot. And hopefully I'm close to an accurate translation on, on actually what it's saying. But then the second half says, Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. With the last half of verse 10, he begins a new discussion on love. And we're going to look at that next time. So the first half of this verse goes with the section we've been looking at, and that points upward, okay? That connects with those verses. This section points to what follows it, all right? Now remember, I'm not doing anything sacrilegious here because the verse, you know, divisions don't, don't go in there, all right? 
Now, let me just say here, this isn't, and this division is really important, I think. Because look at the phrase. He says, whoever does not do what is right is not of God. Especially the one who doesn't love his brother or sister. If you don't love your brother or sister, you're not of God. Okay? Now, not of God does not mean not born of God. That's not what it says. John is using not of God here to refer to fellowship. Again, to refer to abiding. The one who does not do what is right is not abiding in Christ. Especially the one who doesn't love his brother or sister. And if you take it any other way, what are you saying? You're saying the person is not born of God who doesn't love his brother. A lot of people take that that way. And I'm like, then I don't know any Christians. Because... If we can be one thing, it is unloving to the family of God. Unloving to our brothers and sisters. You've heard it said that Christians are the only people that shoot their own wounded. Okay? And too often, we don't, you know, you either shape up and ship, or ship out. You know, you've got to toe the line. We don't think that we're here to help other people. You're messed up. Go somewhere else. We're here to help each other. Okay? We're here to encourage and support and help one another along. And listen... Loving one another is a difficult task, okay? Someone has said, to dwell above with saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, that's quite a different story. And it is quite a different story at times, all right? It really is. So, uh, if, that's why <laughs> I think this has to be talking about, like I said, it doesn't say not born of God. And he could have said that very simply and made it very clear, but we're, we're starting a new section here, and the section now is he's been talking about fellowship and how believers are to be in fellowship. Now he's saying, here's a main aspect of this fellowship, and that's loving one another. All right, with our next study in 1 John, we're going to be dealing with the very practical and possibly very painful subject of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to take a look at your word. Lord, I pray that your people would be Bereans, Father. This is a difficult text, Lord. So many different opinions. So many different views going in so many different directions. I pray, Lord, that you'd just give us a desire to know the truth, that we would study it, we'd dig it out for ourselves. I pray people wouldn't hold to a view of this text because I said it's so, but they would study it for themselves. Give us a heart to know the truth, Lord. Give us a heart to live and fellowship with you. May we abide with you, Lord, that we might live a righteous, holy life before you. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Amen. Yeah, whereas that section on 3, 4 through 9a is very theological, very difficult, the next section won't be so difficult, just be more hard-hitting because it's just practical. Okay? So, you might want to be sick for a couple weeks. I might want to be. <laughs> All right, questions or comments? Yes, Sharon. Um, considering that the um, uh, sin that leads to death is rejecting Christ, how, do, how would we then deal with apostates? I mean, in order to be an apostate, you have to, I would assume, had to have been a believer. And there are many that actually do deny Christ. And I understand we can't be separated from the love of God by any means. But they could 
conceivably, physically, right. or you know, right. in our time, say I don't believe anymore. Right. So. Okay, and I, and I understand that question, and that's a good question. Um, remember, we're talking about the sin of the devil separating man from God. And when I say someone can't reject Christ, I think with their mouth they can. I think people do reject them with their mouth, but they, they can't be separated. All right, they're a child of God. And it's amazing to me, you know, when we hear these stories of the martyrs, how people are watching their children being killed, but they won't renounce Christ. Because it means so much to them, you know. And I'd be thinking, you know, just say you do and not really mean it, you know. I mean, that would be my mentality. You know, God knows my heart. I don't mean this. You know, but no, they're not. And they can't lose their salvation. You know, someone who understands it, they understand they can't lose it. But they'll watch their children die and be tortured and, you know, but not turn away from the God who loves them. So does that answer your question? Well, I, I mean, I do think people can commit apostasy. They can turn away from God. But you, know? you can't get rid of... Yeah, I don't know. It's more, I guess, maybe a slash comment thing because really, I mean, we... From what you've said, you can't separate yourself. You can't separate. But you can act like it. Yes, you can turn away from the faith. I think mm -hmm. people do that, and God warned the Hebrews about that. You know, right. but again, this is you can't be separated. Now, this is when you are joined, it's a permanent joining. There's no, there's no getting out of it. Okay, Gary. Well, based on what we see as the timeline of history from creation through Genesis and the Nephilim getting into mankind and making us the wonderful creature we are today. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, <clears throat> something you've never addressed, but I guess you will now. Uh, <laughs> the salvation included that act, the Nephilim coming down and, and corrupting mankind. Salvation included it or salvation took it into account? Knew it was took gonna, it into right, account. exactly. I mean, God, you know, <laughs> I like saying this. Has it ever occurred to you that it's never occurred to God? God understands everything. The beginning from the end. He knew. I mean, yes, He knew the plan. He knew what they were going to do and counter to His plan. And but it wasn't just that, was it? What? Didn't He cause that to happen? Well, actually, God causes everything to happen. That's the thing. He's not passive in it. It's, you know, it's all part of a divine plan, you know. And so, yeah, God planned. Why? And you're scratching your head saying, why? Well, here's my answer. He's God. <laughs> they they didn't know the plan. Right, they didn't know the plan. Yeah, Corinthians says they didn't know the plan, right? Because if they had known, they wouldn't crucify the Lord of glory. Because they thought, ah, oh, we're going to win, we kill them. And they go, oh, that was the plan. For you to kill them. So he could pay for sins. And they're like, no, we messed up. I mean, they helped, they promoted the plan of God by the crucifixion of Christ. Well, they could not kill Right, you're right. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> I've had a lot of people ask me that when we talk about sovereignty, you know, because most everybody says, oh, I believe God is sovereign, but he wouldn't do that. Oh, right. he wouldn't do this. Mm -hmm. You mean God meant for Adam and Eve to sin in the garden? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I get this. Well, it's, it, and the Bible says this, Christ died before the foundation of the earth. Mm -hmm. Well, if he died before the earth was ever created, then didn't, wasn't it part of the plan? Then could Adam and Eve have not sinned? And then we're like, oh Christ, you don't need to go die. Plans change. No. Okay? I'm a supra-lapsarian. Alright? I believe that the order of decrees is God decreed everything that happens. It's not like, you know, the infra-lapsarian will say, oh yeah, uh, man sinned and then God came up with the next plan to fix it. No, God was way ahead of it. Okay? 
This is the plan of God. And it's the plan of God to put himself on display, to bring glory to him. Well, it's kind of like we talked about this morning. Most Christians give all the power to Satan, that he's going around doing his bidding, and everybody's, you know, he's having his way, and God's just sitting up there wringing his hands, right. you know, helpless. And that's a sad thing, because that's how people view God. He's like, boy, he, if he could fix this, he would. I'm like, right? He, he'd fix it if he could, but he can't. So he's not omnipotent. What, what is that? All-powerful. He wants to do something, but he just... And that's the art. You know, people want to argue about that stuff. Listen, God is absolutely sovereign. He's in control of every event that takes place in time. He planned it. Ephesians 1 says he's working out the, the plans he's already laid. He's working those plans out. It bothers people. People don't like God to be in charge. Who does he think he is to be in charge? He's God. And when you can make a world, you can control and tell that world what it's supposed to do and how it's supposed to do it, you know? They don't like the way he does things. He does things that they don't think should take place. Right, exactly. We don't agree with this. Now listen, if you don't like the way God's running things, leave his world. (laughs) Go to some other place. (laughs) You know? Where are you going to go? (laughs) But he is. He's God and he's absolutely sovereign. All right, that is so, I think, important to understanding. That was another doctrine I used to fight. But, uh, you know, now it's probably one of my favorites because it's very comforting. God is in control. All right, you might have meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Incredible. I don't care what they do. God meant it for good. Yes? <laughs> one more. Um, today is, most days, but seemingly more pronounced today, Take a verse and say that this version trans, translated it correctly, the King James, CSB, whatever. And, and oftentimes you'll pick out a translation that tra- translates it correctly. It's different. So none of them have it all correct. So when are you going to come up with the Curtis correct? Uh, well, it wouldn't be correct if I did it either. Okay, I mean, <laughs> believe me, I'm not by any means saying I got the I could do the correct translation. But I just see these things that are glaring, you know, faults in in some of the translations. You know, uh, there's bias there. I think ESV is a great translation, but I have a problem with it there because they're using the perfect tense to make it say things it really doesn't say. Mm-hmm. And if you did that. We wouldn't need to be Bereans, would we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, it says, seek the favor, support, or custom of. Seek the favor? Seek the favor, support, or custom of. So God is seeking our support. Try to gain the love of someone, especially with the view to marriage. Well, I, I guess I understood woo in the sense of you're wooing a woman. You know, you're trying to attract. <laughs> you're trying to gain Don't say that today, Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy, I want to woo you. <laughs> you're likely to get slapped, all right? <laughs> All right, uh, Rico asked me, uh, do you think that 1 John 3, 6 could be read this way? Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who does the sin has not seen him or known him. The reason why I say this is because 
if it's talking about the sinning of unbelief, then it makes sense that those who are unbelievers are the ones who have not seen Him or known Him. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying here, but I think those seeing Him and knowing Him, John uses those of fellowship, not of being a Christian or not a Christian. And that's why I, I take the difference. Verse 6 is talking to me about fellowship because it says abide. That's a strong word. This whole you know, 1 John is about abiding. That's what to me the theme is. Most people say the theme of 1 John is a test to tell who's a believer. I don't think that's what it's talking about. But, you know, hey, I could be wrong. Wouldn't be the first time. Do what? Yeah. There's no definite. Right, right. Yeah, David has brought out that there is no definite article in 6. It's not thus in. And we see that a lot in Romans. 